Uh, my name is Michael Keeling. Um, I am uh, the first cousin of Charmaine Jefferson. She is, uh, her mother and my mother were, were sisters, and so I'm so proud to be able to, uh, to introduce her here tonight. Um, I've known Charmaine all my life. She's known me all her life. <laughs> so, oh, I'm sorry. She's known me all my life. So, <laughs> uh, she's, she's a little bit older than me, so she's, by the time that I was, you know, got out of my insular uh, mental state, and she has already gone to, to college and, and had explored and had begun her exploration of the world. So, let me just kind of reiterate what's already in the program. Um, Charmaine Jefferson is the principal owner and service provider for Kalon Resources, uh, delivering consulting and producing services that integrate art, history, culture, inclusion, and diversity into the DNA of education. Allow me to tell you a little bit more about her. A native of Los Angeles, Ms. Jefferson received a Bachelor of Arts in Dance from the University of California, Los Angeles, a Master of Arts in Dance Education from New York University, and a JD from George, Georgetown University Law Center. In her early years, Ms. Jefferson was a professor, a professional concert dancer before she began her arts administration career as a senior dance program specialist and site visit coordinator at the National Endowments for the Arts. Ms. Jefferson went on to law school at night and upon graduation went to work as an associate trial attorney for the law firm of Holland and Knight in Tampa, Florida. Just two years into her legal career, Ms. Jefferson's phone rang and the famous founder of Dance Theater of Harlem, Arthur Mitchell, was on the other end asking her to come to NYC as, and to serve as the Dance Theater of Harlem's general manager. Certain that only God could have tempted her with such a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, she accepted the offer and made DTH her new home. Then just three years later, Ms. Jefferson was recruited and appointed by then Mayor Ed Koch and again by Mayor David Dinkins to serve as the Deputy and Acting Commissioner of New York City's Department of Cultural Affairs. Just as it was time for her five-year city service tenure to end, Dance Theater of Harlem asked Ms. Jefferson to return and oversee the organization and the construction of its new $60 million facility, its facility expansion, uh, but this time as the executive director. Ms. Jefferson returned to Los Angeles to pursue opportunities in the commercial entertainment field, first as the Vice President of Business Affairs for DePass Entertainment, and subsequently as Director of Show Development and Creative Resources for Disney Entertainment Productions, overseeing the creation of public performance in association with what was the opening for the, for the then new Downtown Disney, Disney California Adventure, and Disneyland. She served as the executive director of the California African American Museum for 11 years and honored her uncle John, John Riddle's memory at every chance she could. Uh, Ms. Jefferson's dedication to the arts has always included voluntary service and numerous public commissions and private nonprofit boards uh, from the Harlem Empowerment Zone and the Arts and Business Council in New York to the Jacobs Pillow Dance Festival in Massachusetts as the treasurer, uh, being on the board of arts for LA uh, to serving eight years as the gubernatorial appointee to the California Arts Council and 14 years as the mayor appointee, the mayoral appointee as a volunteer commissioner for the Los Angeles Department of Cultural Affairs. Now, as part of her 18 years of volunteer service on the board of trustees of the California Institute of the Arts, she 
she was voted chairman of the board in 2022. It is this wide range of service and advocacy for the arts that had Ms. Jefferson's receiving from Mayor Karen Bass and the entire Los Angeles City Council, the City Hall's Fame Award, I'm sorry, the City Hall Fame Award, Hall of Fame Award, uh, this past February the 2nd. This year, when the Association for the Study of African American Life and History has established Blacks in the Arts as the theme for Black History Month 2024, it is our pleasure to bring Charmaine as our keynote speaker. Welcome. I told him not to read it. First off, um, I'm going to try my best not to disappoint you today, because this has already been an extraordinary program. Um, I was going to do the Paul Robeson thing, too, so thank you. That, um, and to be asked to be here by my family uh, means the world. It's not just uh, nepotism. Uh, it means that now that I happen to be the eldest in our class, <laughs> I get to tell them what to do. <laughs> Um, before I get started, uh, I want to put context around what I'm going to try to do today, and I'm, I'm looking at the clock, so I'm watching it. My family knows. They'll all wave their hand if they'll go shut up. <laughs> but, um, you know, I have all these pieces of paper up here with me, and et cetera, and they're just in case there's something I want to refer to. But I tried to think about how to approach uh, today's conversation not with the typical things about the arts where I rattle off that, you know, Lena Horne got blackballed because she was being an advocate. You know, you all think of her as wonderful, but she was being an advocate and they blackballed her. Um, it is not to tell you about how Paul Robeson was blackballed because of what he tried to do in activism. It's to try to take today and think about the art of storytelling the storytelling of history. Um, and for some of you know this, some of you don't, so I'm going to do this in some odd orders. If I sound like I'm going all over the place, it's probably because I am. But it, I want to get it all out because I'm a big believer in being a dot connector. So first thing I want to do is acknowledge that right here in your Altadena home, you have two extraordinary artists who have a connection to each other both Lamont, Westmoreland, wave, stand for one second, for one second, Lamont, and Mark Stephen Greenfield, your newest artistic resident. And I bring it up because Lamont has been in this community for a very long time. It's rallied to him when he has not only made art, but when he's had problems with a disaster in his family and the community has come around him. And your newest artistic resident in Mark Stephen Greenfield, who decided to abandon Los Angeles and come into Altadena. <laughs> These two men, extraordinary artists, first have been friends for a long time. But it was 1972 at LACMA, you know that place in Los Angeles? When the African-American security guards, 
staff people, they had all kinds of titles that people decided you're not doing anything for blacks and we need to do something. And they put together the 1972 Los Angeles Black Panorama Show. Lamont Westmoreland and Mark Stephen Greenfield were both in that exhibition and on the front cover was the artwork of John Riddle. So right now, we've just connected the dots to Pasadena, Altadena. Let me keep going. That was by itself an extraordinary show. And the work that was on the front cover of that show for John Riddle, if you, and I'm gonna say I hope it's still there because I haven't looked in a year or two, was an artwork out of Attica was on the front cover. And that piece was on the grounds of the Kendron Community Mental Health Center on Central Avenue. And at that time, Noah Purfoy, who was a visual artist, was working there. And Noah Purfoy and John Riddle were good friends. And Noah Purfoy, I can only imagine that the two of them had decided that they wanted to somehow or another use art to make a statement and be funny at the same time. Because it was a mental health center at the time. And they, and John Riddle made these works, one called Muslim Cow, another one that was out of Attica that was reflective of the work and things that happened in the jailbreaks, or I'm sorry, riots in Attica and the conditions that were there. There were several other pieces, but one that I remember the most, uh, and that was an operation table. The power of art. Here was this operation table, approximately five or six feet long, probably about four or five feet tall. It had a black man on the table in geometric form. These were the shapes that John Riddle used. And standing above it, was a white figure, same geometric figure, clearly operating on his head. How Noah Purfoy got anyone to agree to put this artwork on the grounds of the Ketchum Community Mental Health Center is beyond me. But I can only imagine them sitting behind on the side, social drinking, and laughing at the fact that they were able to use art to make a political statement, to make a statement about conditions and other things like that. And that is the kind of work that is also done by the artists that are in this room and by many of the artists that I find myself drawn to. But the reason why I wanted to stop today and tell you to think about the art of storytelling. I could have danced. It wouldn't have looked good. I could have swung my head, leg up on this podium and not been able to get it back down. <laughs> and trust me, I've done that once. <laughs> In front of a bunch of teenagers, I learned I would never pull that stunt again. Um, in order to connect you to both Carter G. Woodson, to your own hometown, and to the kinds of things that some of the artists have gone through. So here's my deviation for just a quick moment. I'll stop for a second to tell you about two artists 
Joshua Johnson, and Moses Williams. And it was Mark Stephen Greenfield who made me start thinking more about Moses Williams. Now I had the great fortune of interviewing him a couple of days ago. And so it was a conversation between the two of us because we've known each other forever. And so, you know, everything but the stories you shouldn't tell anybody. And he said something in that moment that struck a nerve that said that Moses Williams, who was one of the first caricature artists, sorry, silhouette artist, was recognized as an artist. And he said, well, he was probably one of the first black artists to be recognized as a professional. And I realized that I, and this is in the 1700s, 1800s, and I realized that I didn't know that. But it made me go look at it more closely. Because he remarked at the fact that Moses Williams remained a slave till he was 27 years old, even though his parents had gotten their freedom. So he remained in the custody of his slave owner while his parents were free, which meant for most of his teen years, he was raised by his slave owner and not by his parents. And I wondered why that was, and because we were shorthanding, we didn't explain it too deeply to an audience. So I said, let me go back and look at this a little more closely. I know I know this. And I digress because it had come just on the heels of learning the ancestry of Carter G. Woodson on the Woodson side. So stay with me, I'm gonna come back. And I went looking at this work that Moses Williams did the silhouettes, he would, he would create the silhouettes. You know, some of you have seen silhouette artwork. And he, his master utilized the machinery that allowed you to uh, trace someone's image and then make a silhouette out of it. And he became very, very good at it. And this was at the Peel Museum in Philadelphia. And he was able, once he was let go of freedom at 27, to be able to make money off of it. But because he had been under the arm of his slave owner for so many years, when he couldn't, he, it required that he still utilize the equipment and other things that his slave owner had. So he wasn't really free to walk away, even though he made enough money to buy a house and he had a wife. And she was the white cook of his slave owner. By this time, they are able to marry. He is a freed man. And yet, when he cannot totally free himself, he can't retain his living. And when he can't retain his living, it's the beginning of thinking about what are the issues that make it almost impossible to get out of what was the social structures in slavery. And I'm deliberately trying to weave for you both history and thinking about an artist and thinking about the art that they make and why they may or may not make it. In his case, he was simply creating silhouettes of people, most of whom were white, most of whom were of the aristocratic 
uh, era. Before him was Joshua Johnson. He got to paint with paint. He got to create portraits. He was about 17 years older than uh, Moses Williams was. And it's only been recently that, he's, that the paintings that he made have been attributed to him. So if you're thinking about someone who is in the 1800s or 1700s, late 1700s, creating portraits of those who are in the upper class in Baltimore, he, this is a black man, he is painting their portraits. Stop a minute and think about a couple of things. One, he was a fair skin, very fair skin. He was sometimes referred to as a mulatto. Fair enough that he probably could have gotten away with passing if that's what he did, depending. He too had been a slave, as had been his parents. And when his and just like Moses Williams, when they were slaves, the names that they had were the names usually of their slave owners. So imagine sitting here trying to dig through history to find from where you come, who you're connected to, and you may not even be able to do it because your name was constantly changed. And if you got freedom, you changed it to what you wanted it to be. In the case of, uh, of the uh, Peel family that owned Moses Williams' parents, their name was Scarborough and I'm gonna forget it, but it's on my piece of paper. I'll come back to you on it. When they got their freedom, they changed, he changed his name to John Williams. But their son was named Moses for all the biblical reasons. And when he got his freedom, he changed his name so that it became Moses Williams. But if you were trying to find him as a slave on a slave docket, it wouldn't show up that way. Right? So think about what it means to not only be able to practice an artistry, or to think of Joshua Johnson practicing an artistry, but the entire time you're doing it, you still have to do it within the boundaries of how you're going to be seen in society and what you have the right to do and not do. A couple of historic points here. It was in our lifetimes that the last laws against miscegenation were taken off the books. That seems really stupid, right? But imagine it. Including some of those laws were such that if someone white chose to marry someone who was of color, they could be arrested. They could lose their land. They could be fined. So even where true love was in place, it wasn't going to happen. So in our current time, we think of the loving decision as the one that tells us about when people have the right to marry. 
But in fact, if you go very, very far back, it wasn't just the right to marry. You, you couldn't live with, you weren't acknowledging. And so therefore, the idea that a Moses Williams married the cook of his slave owner and she was white meant that along the line, he was too trying to express both his humanity as an artist in his work and his humanity as a human being to love who he wanted to love. That is history, but it's also a story. And as soon as you start to think about that story and all the things that go around it, you start to realize exactly why you keep digging, why you don't stop digging, why Black History Month is not just black history. Now, I promised you I was going to circle back around. All the people who are related to the riddles, would you please stand for a moment? These are the ones in the house. Thank you. I told them I was going to do that to them. Uh, some of you know this, some of you don't know this. So this is the quick version, and for my family who's heard this 20 million times, just you know, close your ears, bear with me. It is powerful to know from where you come. That's why I wanted to do this around the idea of thinking about storytelling as a way to hold on to history. It is an art. You don't have to be good at it. You just have to have a passion for the idea that you can get someone excited about something by telling story. That's what artists do. They do it in dance, they do it in music. They do it in their artwork, they do it in theater, they do it in poetry. I'm gonna give it to you real clear and plain. We know what we know about Carter G. Woodson, but particularly about our grandfather, John Morton Riddle, because Carter G. Woodson wrote it down. He wrote it down. If I tried to find his mother, who was owned by a slave owner named Thomas Huggins, I wouldn't have been able to find Carter G. Woodson's mother because she wasn't a riddle till she married a riddle. She wasn't a Woodson. His mother wasn't a Woodson until she married a Woodson. And we don't know who Suzanne Riddles, we know who her, who her slave owner was, but we don't know who her parents and her people were because there are so many riddles around the country. When I went really looking at the riddles, so many around the country that in fact, I'd venture to say that the riddle side of that family was sold so many times that there is no way that we'll ever probably connect that particular piece. But here's what I found out. Here's the fun part about it. And I'm thinking, this has got to be a play. We need to make a movie. We the other day, while I was preparing for something else, and I'm looking up one little bit of history, Lo and behold, I see an NPR story on the Woodsons. I go, okay, we haven't really explored the Woodsons, but I'm going to read this story. And it's, I'm thinking it's going to be about the Woodson, the Carter G. Woodson 
black side of the family. Guess what it was about? The white family discovering that they were slave owners. They didn't know. I want you to think about that a minute, because I don't know how they didn't know that they had been slave owners when they had a family book that could connect them all the way back to 1619. It was in their family. If they had passed along all of the story, everyone would have known. If the campfire was not just about how the Woodsons, John, I believe their names were John and Sarah, arrived in 1619 in Virginia, and they had come to settle the land and help the settlers that were there. The story they liked to tell was that the Indians attacked and they did, the family, and the father was killed. He was a doctor and a, I think a surgeon, etc. He was killed, and the wife fought them off and hid the two children, two sons, one in the bathtub and one in the potato barrel. So one was known as the tub and one was known as the potato. And they were hidden. That's the story they passed along the art of storytelling. So as they grew up, they are very proud that they, are, they can trace themselves not only to 1619, but all the way back to England, how the mother defended off the, off the Indians. They're just telling the stories. They've got it. They don't know about Carter. They don't know about Carter's mama. They don't know about Carter's daddy because they're not having that discussion. There cannot be half a story in history. Right? So when one day, uh, back in the 90s, 89, sorry, 98, one of the sons decided, went to go get some stamps. It was the year that they were honoring Carter G. Woodson with a stamp. So we have this beautiful photograph of Carter G. Woodson on a stamp. He sees it. He goes back to his dad and says, Dad, this guy's name is Woodson. Any chance he has a relationship to us? And his father said, well, look in the, the family legacy book. They had a book. They'd written it down. And he went back, and he looks at it, and he says, Dad, why didn't you tell me? So well, you didn't ask. They were having a Christopher Columbus moment. <laughs> By that I mean Christopher arrived on the land and said, look what I discovered. And the folks on the land said, you didn't discover anything. We were already here, but how you doing? And he was just torn apart. This is a white Woodson to find out that his family had owned slaves. I can't imagine that they never thought that, but they obviously weren't talking about it. 
And so he goes and he starts looking. And he talks to someone he worked with and he asks her about this particular issue. And says, you know, I just found out that my family might have had slaves. This was a, a, a black woman who was an ethnomusicologist. And by the way, he was studying African drumming. So there's, there's like, you know, like Vulcan mind melds are going on here. And she says, oh, I know someone who happens to be a Woodson. And guess what? It was here in California. Here. He goes, he meets them. Long story short, he meets them. He says, I am so sorry. They're really reluctant to whether or not they want to meet him because where did this white Woodson come from all of a sudden? And now he wants to talk to us and he wants to hear more and etc. But because of it, they talk to one another. And they got to know each other. And even at one point, they went into Holman Church and they did a ceremony where he actually asked on behalf of his family for forgiveness that his family had owned their family. And it was complicated, but it, it took years to make this thing work. And all this time, I didn't know. And here I was looking for something entirely different in this search. And I look up and go, Woodson, and my family members will tell you, I literally stopped, it probably was three o'clock in the morning, and sent them all out a note and said, oh my God, look what I just found. And it was under my nose because they're here in LA. But what it meant was all of a sudden through the Woodson side of Carter G. Woodson, we could trace ourselves back all the way to 1619. We are related on the Riddle side. I'll come to that in a minute. But we could at least at that point and that when the Woodsons landed, they, they had landed at the same time that there was a ship with 20 African slaves from Angola. So guess what? All of a sudden, we didn't just stop in Virginia. We had an idea that someone in the family may have been related, was connected to Angola. It got us to the continent. And that's not, I still can't do it on the riddle side, but it told me something about the Woodsons. And when I looked, I could see who the slave owners were all the way along the line, all the way down through Henry. So here's the quick one. So Henry, now this is the family joke. Henry Riddle was the son, the slave's son and half-brother, slave son of Henry Riddle and half-brother of Watt Riddle. Think about that a minute. Got it? Nobody's marrying anybody. You got it. During the Civil War, Watt Riddle Jr. didn't want to go into the Confederate Army, not because he was anti-slavery, but because he didn't want to go to war. He didn't want to fight. He didn't want to be in the military. So Henry Riddle, his half-brother's slave, would row him up and down the river to keep him from being seen by the Confederate soldiers. And I remember the year, and why do we know this? Because Carter G. Woodson wrote it down when John Morton Riddle died in 1942. And he wrote a memoir to John Morton and put it in the journal 
for Negro life in history. And in that story, he'd roam up now. So when we all discovered this piece in the family, the Thanksgiving dinner conversation was like, who the heck was Henry Riddle? What was this fool? He must not be related to us because, mm -mm. now you would roll in the wrong direction, right? <laughs> but imagine that he had to. He needed to do that. And why did he need to do it? Because Henry Riddle also had married Susan. Remember the Hutchkins? Susan and the children were sold away. And when we look through our history, we can see that there are three or four different uh, strands of, riddle, of uh, riddles because Henry married a second time. But the first time was Susan. And it was from Susan that John Morton Riddle and Anne Eliza Riddle were born. And Anne Eliza Riddle is the mother of Carter G. Woodson, and she married James Woodson. And it is that, and her brother was John Morton Riddle. And when John Morton Riddle became free and went to the school that was available for freedmen and got his certificate, and when he went back and taught Carter G. Woodson, Carter G. Woodson's feeling about that was, he was my first teacher. I wouldn't know that if Woodson had not written it down. And through every step of the way, we then got to learn. And so we quickly followed that he was the leader, uh, became a, he worked in the coal mines. We know that he went to, through Virginia after the war. He became a justice of the peace and his brother became a, a, a county supervisor. And they were even, even able to um, kind of put the guy who'd been the overseer on the plantation in jail for a while. But he moved on, and he moved into Ohio, by this time becoming a Baptist preacher. Amen. I got you back to the church, didn't I? <laughs> and he became so good at it, he, in Ohio is where he met his wife, Sarah Preston. And they had 10 children, 11 if you count at least one of them that I know passed away. And from Ohio, they, Renville, Ohio, they moved into Columbus. And there they were, ready to do it. But what's the power of the story? It's at the same time, we're after slavery. We're after Reconstruction. And we're at the heart of the Ku Klux Klan's rise in Columbus, Ohio. And he says, get my family out. And he takes them. I'm still trying to figure out how he moved what was it, probably at that point about seven or six kids from Columbus, Ohio to Marysville, California? I'm, I'm still trying to figure that one out. And from there, down into Altadena. And I looked at that, I looked at the Woodson story, I looked at the story of looking at Native Americans being moved on the trail who were slave owners, voluntary slave owners. They saw themselves as, a, as in a position above the black slaves, and whites had long since stopped trying to have the Native Americans be slaves to them. 
And, and so when they went on the trail of tears, they took their slaves with them. When I think about the miscegenation laws, I discovered a story, a study happening just recently where they figured out that those who were called Melungeons in Appalachia had come up with that term so that they could say that they were part Portuguese, Native American, and white, but not necessarily people who might have some African or black blood. And when they just did this study and they did a DNA test through all the paternals, it went back to Africa. It wasn't Portuguese. Maybe there was some Native American. No, they were of a darker skin because there had been intermixing all along the way. And so when we sit here in Black History Month and we think about how do we celebrate art, how do we celebrate black history in the way that Carter G. Woodson wanted us to do at 365, we are in a moment right now where black history is absolutely not black history. It is everybody's history. It's Woodson discovering what went on with his family. It's the people in Appalachia discovering that they're not Melungeon, that they, the name term that they came up with, but in fact, no, you're this color because somebody was mixing. And no matter how many ways you try to shape this some other kind of way, it's not because you forget who, that we might have been slave owners. Remembering and telling the story Every one of you is a storyteller. And it doesn't matter whether you can trace yourself all the way back to France. It doesn't matter whether or not you are brown or not brown. No matter how difficult the story, in order to own it and grow on it, you have to put your hands around it. You have to see, so when the next time you walk in to look at an artwork, the next time you look at a dance, at a poem, at a story, what is it that the artist is trying to say to you? What's the storyteller trying to say to you? What, what is it that you need to know in order to then go, oh, wait, this opened my eyes to something else, and it opened my eyes to something else, and I don't like that, but why don't I like it? Right? This Campbell soup can. This is, the, this is the artistic moment to that point. When you are not troubled, when your life is not hard, you can contemplate a Campbell's soup can. When you are hungry, that Campbell's soup can looks different. When you go to buy a Carter G. Woodson stamp and you don't know the history, but you decide, I'll ask, and you learn something new, I sit back and commend. The, a man who loved African music, a white man who loved African music, went to Africa to explore his willingness to discover and go back and learn. It is in this context that I wanted today to stop and just be able to say to you, not only do you have connections to Carter G. Woodson in this community, you have it because the riddles were here. 
You have it in Ralph Riddle, who was your first black police officer. You have it in Valente Riddle, who's here. You have it in Michael Keeling, whose mother was a Riddle, and his family. My Riddle relatives who carry the last name there. You have it in each one of you because they also had an artist. And you also have it in all the untold stories. So the one I leave you with is this. Next time somebody asks you about Jackie Robinson, yeah, he came from here. Of course we love him. He's fabulous. But you look at them and tell him, yeah, but you know, he, was, he sat down first on the front of the seat and didn't go to the back. You don't need to tell his baseball story. I can tell you the baseball story of my grandfather, John Riddle, the son of John Morton, who played in the color leagues, who went to Asia, who was the first black to play in the Rose Bowl, who was, in fact, married to the woman who became the first black to graduate from USC's law school. We can do all of that. But it's the lesser known stories that connect the dots, that put us all together, and that's the artistry of storytelling. Thank you. <laughs>